Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. The murder of 19-year-old Natalie Bullinger in December of 2017 shook the state of Colorado and made national headlines. Natalie was reported missing on December 28, 2017, by her boyfriend, Tim Beeson. She was last seen at her apartment located in Broomfield, Colorado. Her boyfriend reported that she had left behind her cell phone which was unlike Natalie. She always had her phone with her at all times. The act seemed intentional. But what worried investigators the most was the fact that a gun from the apartment was also missing. Family and friends immediately took to social media asking for help in locating her. Unfortunately, Natalie wouldn't remain missing for very long. The next day, her body was found in a wooded area near a dairy farm in the unincorporated area of Adams County. There was very little information released at first with sheriff officials stating that Natalie's death was being investigated as a homicide. What wasn't released by police was the fact that Natalie had been shot in the back of the head execution style. From a review of the autopsy report, it appears that Natalie was on her knees with the bullet coming down from someone in a standing position in a downward trajectory. In addition to the bullet wound, which was her cause of death, Natalie had also ingested a potentially lethal level of heroin prior to her murder. The investigation into Natalie's death revealed a heartbreaking tale of a young woman who was struggling with depression and was being stalked by an unwanted admirer. Many of Natalie's friends thought they knew exactly who had killed the troubled girl. Now, it turns out that Natalie had a rough upbringing, raised by parents who often fought over her and suffered from substance abuse issues. Natalie and her twin sister, Alicia, were often removed from their home due to horrific abuse and neglect. But despite this less than ideal start to the world, Natalie was known for her heart of gold and giving nature to help anyone who appeared to be down on their luck. And Natalie had dreams of her own too, She planned to study nursing and continue her desire to help and nurture others. It was this trusting nature that led Natalie to befriend a sometimes homeless man by the name of Sean Shorts. Sean was decades older than Natalie and 42 years old at the time of her murder. Sean seemed to always have an excuse for why he couldn't improve his life. It appeared from his many Facebook posts and YouTube videos that Sean was a smart guy suffering from some debilitating mental health issues. 
and we will discuss those posts and videos a little later in this episode. What was very clear was the fact that Natalie and Sean had a friendship that had spanned years, beginning when Natalie was barely a teenager and ending shortly before her death. In social media posts and direct messages between the two, you can tell that Natalie and Sean cared very deeply for each other. In some exchanges, Natalie is trying to track down Sean to give him a birthday cake that she baked for him. And in other messages, he is checking on her to make sure she is doing well. Even though Natalie was the child and Sean was the adult, she tried very hard to help him get back on his feet. In some exchanges, it appears that Sean had taken on a fatherly role with Natalie, encouraging her to go after her dreams, even telling her that her new facial piercings looked nice. And at some point, their friendship ended and Sean wasn't happy about it. He began stalking Natalie. In some exchanges, he is having what can only be described as an adult tantrum. He wasn't ready for their friendship to end. He wasn't taking the ending of this friendship well and began harassing the young girl on both social media and in real life. Now, shortly before her murder, he laid down in the middle of the street, holding up traffic until Natalie agreed to speak with him. Instead, it led to an encounter with law enforcement. Approximately two weeks before Natalie was murdered, she made a Facebook post to her family and friends about Sean Schwartz. On December 13th, 2017, she told her Facebook audience, quote, Hey y'all, I have a public announcement. There is a man, Sean Schwartz. I met this man when I was young. I ran into him about two years ago. Long story short, I became friends with him. I helped him out with rides and stuff. I moved to Virginia. He drove across the country to see me, slept behind my work for weeks. When I told him I didn't want to see him anymore, he sent me hundreds of texts and calls. He parked his car in front of my house, blocking military highway for hours, laying on his horn. He was arrested. Since then, I've asked him to leave me alone, and he won't. He's sent emails for over a year, close to every day, harassing me, making numerous accounts until I block him again, threatening my family, telling me he'll kill himself in front of me, and sending my friends and family harassing messages as well. I'm sharing this because he's posting slander about me all over Facebook, so if you receive a message, I am sincerely sorry. Please ignore him. It only encourages him when he gets a response, much like a child. He's mentally ill, and I'm trying to fix this. In retaliation for this post, Sean created new Facebook accounts under numerous fake names to defend himself. Natalie had finally had enough of his behavior, and on December 22, 2017, Natalie was finally granted a restraining order against Sean. She took to Facebook once again and stated, quote, Update, he was served with a restraining order this afternoon. On Friday, he and I have court. He will be charged with stalking and harassment. He is looking at eight plus years in jail. I feel safe. Thank you all for your support, end quote. And that post was made seven days before Natalie disappeared. Of course, once again, Sean took to Facebook under an alias name, defending himself and asking for help in finding Natalie.
In one post under an alias, he said, quote, This is my last post. I can't stomach this ignorance and cruelty. Examine yourself. Realize people like all of you turned Sean crazy. You have no clue what he has been through in life or how he has still remained loving and kind, handing out blankets to people when he himself was homeless, literally saving lives because they would have frozen to death without his kindness. All of this after incessant harassment over this girl. She asked for him to be around, she asked for his help, and he asked for hers. They were friends. She chose this just as he did. I get it, y'all are angry, she is possibly dead, but attacking another human and taking out your upset on him, assuming that he killed her, is the last thing you should be doing if you want to help anything at all. I don't care about the videos or the posts he has made about her, he is a good person, end quote. Now, despite what Sean believed was a clever way to defend himself and disguise his identity, Natalie's friends quickly caught on that it was just another Sean alias. That is when the social media groups dedicated to finding Natalie came out and decided they were going to solve this crime themselves. Of course, many dangers come with an online community of internet detectives, the most important of which is that they are often wrong and cause a lot of hurt in the process with their speculation and accusations. In this instance, they followed the path of least resistance and accused Sean of abducting and murdering Natalie. To clear his name, Sean taunted the internet sleuths and said that he would be at a local church waiting for them to kill him. He dared them to come out and harm him if they thought he hurt Natalie. Instead, the police showed up and booked Sean into the Boulder County Jail. He was booked on unrelated charges and then held on an involuntary hold because he appeared to be a danger to himself and others. He was officially charged with second-degree assault, obstructing an officer, and restraining arrest while police were in the process of conducting a welfare check and they were able to admit him to a hospital based on his Facebook postings where he made references to suicidal ideation. During Sean's time in custody, he allegedly told officers that he was fine, but just upset because he missed his friend, but he couldn't talk to her anymore because she was dead. At this time, Sean was considered a person of interest in Natalie's death. However, Sean was cooperative and turned over access to his cell phone and his computer and voluntarily gave a DNA sample. Sean wanted to appear cooperative and he wanted law enforcement to clear him and find Natalie's real killer. After his release, Sean was manic and angry and took to YouTube and Facebook once again to vent his frustrations with the online support groups now dedicated to finding justice for Natalie. These groups also included some friends and members of Natalie's family. There were hundreds of posts accusing Sean of being responsible for Natalie's murder. Shortly after his release, he made a Facebook post entitled, why am I a person of interest and not a suspect? In it, he rambled on incessantly and eventually accused everyone else of Natalie's murder, including her father. Sean believed that Natalie's father, Ted Bullinger, and her twin sister, Alicia, were falsely setting him up for Natalie's murder. 
He also made references to his belief that Ted was responsible for his own daughter's death due to his alleged documented history of abusing both Natalie and her twin sister. And that is when Sean began posting screenshots of DMs he shared with Natalie, where it was clear that at one time, the two were genuine friends who rooted for each other's success and shared parts of their lives. We know from Natalie's posting, when she was warning people about Sean, she accused him of following her when she temporarily moved to Virginia the following year. What she didn't tell her Facebook audience was that she asked Sean to drive out to Virginia and visit her. She also shared deep conversations with Sean where she revealed painful details of her upbringing. In one DM sent by Natalie, she confided that her mom had left her when she was very young and then came back into their lives when they were eight years old. Natalie shared that she didn't remember her mom and she was a virtual stranger. Her messages stated, quote, My mom fought for us for months. She got custody because we were being raised by awful humans. I was happy to leave, but I didn't know this woman I was calling mom. I had a brother I'd never met, and I hated him. My mom left our family and started a new one, but he was a baby, so I didn't hate him for long. My dad moved to Rhode Island running away. We went back and forth between them for years. My mom would lose us for having dangerous men around. Then we'd go back to my dad until he started doing drugs again. My dad got custody of us. He wasn't allowed to drink because he became demonic. But he's my dad, so of course he did. He was having an affair at the time, and I was woken up by screams from my stepmother, Shelly. They had two children by this time. He had been drinking and was trying to kill Shelly. He was hitting her face on the curb repeatedly until she wasn't moving. There was much more. But yeah, so my mom got custody for a long time. Then she married this very abusive man. It got to the point where the judge said he wasn't allowed near us children. But he scared my mom, so she still let him live with us. Meanwhile, my dad moved back to Colorado. He came and proved he was there, and he took Alicia and me. Shortly after this, he had us selling drugs for him at 13, 14 years old. He was hitting on us and doing drugs with us while being a little too friendly. So my sister told on him. This was while I knew you at the park. We were put into foster care. My mom had moved to Virginia to get away from her husband, and we were in and out of foster homes. I hadn't spoken with her in a year or so before I asked her to come get me. Then they were going to hold me in a group until I was 21 because I couldn't stop getting high. We moved to Virginia, and I think you know the rest, but that's the most of my story. From a review of her text message and direct message exchanges, it is clear that Natalie had an extremely abusive and dysfunctional upbringing as a child. As a result of this trauma and pain, Natalie began harming herself by abusing hard drugs and alcohol. But despite this rough start and despite her deep addictions, she still wanted a better life for herself. She would fight hard and repeatedly get clean only to relapse again or wind up in an abusive relationship. Yet despite her struggles and despite how little she did have, she always was willing to help others, even Sean. 
In another direct message exchange posted on Sean's Facebook timeline, Natalie allegedly told him she couldn't wait for him to come to Virginia and spend some time with him. She had made him a birthday cake and told him to drive safely because she knew he was prone to panic attacks. One of his triggers could be traffic. Sean was a talented artist and she would encourage him and tell him how talented he was as an artist. They would often send the artwork back and forth to each other for praise and encouragement. Along the way, Sean made a lot of excuses for his behavior, which he blamed on his PTSD and debilitating panic attacks. From the outside looking in, it appeared that Sean was the ideal suspect. He could be volatile and he refused to respect Natalie's boundaries. He even posted once about a plan allegedly created by his friends to help kidnap Natalie and force her to listen to him and resolve their issues. Sean wasn't willing to allow his friendship with this young girl to end on his terms or any terms. Even after her death, he would comment under her past post on her own page that he would never stop speaking up or speaking out until he was dead. While there were text messages where Natalie alluded to being molested by one of her mother's boyfriends, there were never any posts about any alleged sexual behavior by her own father. This didn't prevent Sean from posting rants against pretty girls who have it easy in life and the privilege of pretty people. He also ranted against Natalie's own father, accusing him of molesting his own daughter and then murdering her to cover it up. There were no boundaries Sean wouldn't cross, and there was no bottom to his lashing out. Not even a grieving father was a boundary that Sean would respect. In fact, he posted a video entitled, Ted Bullinger, the Predator vs. Sean Schwartz, the Victim. Alright, this video is Sean Schwartz versus Ted Bollinger. So, uh, by Natalie's own words, and Alicia's own words, Ted Bollinger, their own father, is the one who abused them. While they pretended that I would. I had a squirt gun to defend myself against the people who were harming me over slander by Alicia Bollinger, Natalie Bollinger, and Maddie Boa. <laughs> as well as the media and the police. Ted Bollinger had an actual loaded firearm. I'm not a felon, Ted is. I can't leave the United States of America because I've been charged with a felony, however. A felony that was dropped. A felony assault against a police officer. Officer Waylon Lolatai. That officer assaulted me. Ted Bollinger has been busted with drugs repeatedly. How many drugs have I been busted with? Oh yeah, none. That's right, none, ever. In this video, the bald and bearded Sean goes on to accuse Natalie's sister of being a drug addict, alleging she uses heroin and meth, which was also an accusation he liked to point out about Natalie constantly. He would often say degrading things about her being nothing but a pretty drug addict, 
in the same video. He accused Ted Bollinger, Natalie's father, of abusing his ex-wives, which from a review of court records doesn't seem like that wild of an accusation. Then he discusses conspiracies against him that prevented him from going to court and clearing his good name. He seems obsessed with the fact that, quote, pretty girls have it easier in life and can make the lives of people like him much harder. Sean talked a lot about the predators who were against him and made his life that much harder. His biggest claim seemed to be that Natalie's sister used heroin and meth, which in his opinion made her unworthy of accusing him of Natalie's murder. And to be fair, as batshit crazy as the video appears to be, a lot of this can be chalked up to the anger of being falsely accused. Yes, I said falsely accused. Because it turns out in a bizarre twist of fate that Sean Schwartz wasn't guilty of Natalie's murder. Despite looking like the obvious subject, he was in fact fully innocent. For weeks, he was falsely accused, and he did become the target of an online mob who was sure that they solved this crime from behind their computer screens. But while they were making Reddit posts, resigning from and creating new Facebook groups dedicated to his prosecution, the police were out trying to solve Natalie's murder. And their biggest clue came from the cell phone that Natalie left behind in her apartment. On that cell phone, they discovered that she had exchanged a series of bizarre messages with someone by the name of Joseph Michael Lopez. So here's what we know about Joseph. Unlike Sean, he hadn't been stalking Natalie. We know he was a new friend she met from an ad Natalie placed on Craigslist. And for those of you who don't know what Craigslist is, it's an online classified advertisement website where users can buy or sell a variety of goods and services, such as job listings, housing, and personal ads. It appears it was a personal ad that led Natalie and Joseph to cross paths. An ad that was only on the site for a matter of moments before it was flagged by a site administrator as dangerous and inappropriate. It led to Natalie and Joseph exchanging 111 text messages between them. However, when police contacted Joseph, they didn't know anything about the ad at the time. Investigators approached Joseph as he was heading to his job at Domino's Pizza. He agreed to follow detectives to a nearby police station for questioning. When they first approached him, he said, I'm pretty sure I know why you want to talk to me. Then he spontaneously offered, I think it has to do with that girl I talked to on Craigslist. Joseph told investigators that shortly after Christmas, he was looking in the women seeking men category on Craigslist when he came upon Natalie's ad. Her ad was allegedly entitled, I want to put out a hit on myself. At first, he answered the ad posing as a hitman. He told investigators that he responded by using his fake hitman persona. After lengthy text exchanges, he agreed to kill Natalie. According to Joseph, Natalie told him she was in an abusive relationship and didn't want to hurt her family or friends by taking her own life. He told investigators that Natalie requested that he pick her up from her Broomfield apartment. Once he arrived, they left together and he drove around while discussing how he would be paid and how she wanted to be killed. According to Joseph, Natalie allegedly requested to be killed on her knees, execution style, from behind. Joseph at first told authorities he tried to talk Natalie out of killing herself and drove her back to her apartment and they never saw each other again. He told authorities either she killed herself or she found another hitman to kill her. 
But when confronted with cell phone data that he was at both Natalie's apartment and the murder scene, he changed his story once again. This time, he said they drove around for a few hours looking for the perfect place for Natalie to die. Natalie allegedly wanted to find a place that was peaceful and beautiful. They found the wooded area in Adams County, and they agreed on a spot. Joseph told authorities that Natalie shot herself in the head. However, once again, once confronted with autopsy evidence showing that she was shot at an angle and trajectory that couldn't have been self-inflicted, he finally admitted he shot her himself. He said she was upset because of her relationship with her boyfriend and some other issues and begged him to help her die. Joseph alleged that Natalie kneeled down on the ground, begging him to end her pain. According to Joseph, Natalie was too scared to die alone or do it herself. After her pleas for help, Joseph allegedly kneeled down beside her, alongside her left side, and slightly in front of her. He alleged they both said prayers together, and then he stood up, which aligns with the autopsy report findings, closed his eyes, and shot Natalie one time in the back of the head. He told police he still had Natalie's wallet, purse, and handgun in the trunk of his car. Police recovered those items hidden under his car's spare tire. Joseph denied supplying Natalie with any drugs, nor did they discuss the use of any drugs. He told investigators he had no idea how the potentially lethal dose of heroin got into Natalie's bloodstream. However, the medical examiner did note in the autopsy that Natalie had a, quote, history of heroin and methamphetamine use. After these revelations from Joseph, investigators did talk to Natalie's family and friends about her state of mind around the time of her death. Some friends stated that she was happy and looking forward to attending school, while others indicated that she had a history of suicidal thoughts. After Joseph confessed, he told investigators that he too had a history of suicidal thoughts and depression throughout his life. He said that the guilt was eating away at him and he was having difficulty dealing with his actions. Colorado law does not allow for assisted suicides, so even if it's true that Natalie asked him for help in killing herself, it didn't alleviate Joseph's legal responsibility. Authorities also stated that they didn't know if Natalie changed her mind or what truly happened in the wooded field, but what they do know is that Joseph had a fascination with hitmen and possibly had homicidal urges of his own. In that regard, Joseph was charged with the first-degree murder of Natalie Marie Bollinger. After Joseph's arrest, the investigation continued. Law enforcement learned that Joseph had a deep interest in anime and creating dark-themed anime art. In an alleged posting from him on a site called DeviantArt, dated November 12, 2015, he posted that he hadn't been on the site for a while because he graduated high school, moved out of his parents' home, got a job and an apartment, which he soon lost. He shared that he could no longer afford his home or his internet connection. He stated in part, quote, Bills started to suck, so I lost the internet in my apartment, as well as my job to a mental breakdown caused by depression. I was homeless for a while, but now I'm back with a fresh start. He also had a poetry page on Facebook where he created and posted dark-themed poetry for sale and for enjoyment.
Even after a press conference, clearing Sean's name and a probable cause arrest affidavit where Joseph admitted to ending Natalie's life, the online internet detectives still had a hard time believing that Natalie's death involved a request for assisted suicide. At the time of Joseph's probable cause hearing, the prosecutor in this case made it extremely clear that this wasn't a manslaughter case, this wasn't a case of assisted suicide, and it definitely wasn't a case of depraved indifference. This was a first-degree murder case against a man who coldly shot a woman in need of help in the back of her head and ended her life. There was no mitigating circumstances for this cold-blooded killer. Natalie left her house at 12 p.m., and by 3 p.m., she had been reported missing by her friends, family, and boyfriend. Everyone knew that Natalie was going through a rough period and was in a fragile condition. Natalie was loved, Natalie was grieved, but for the actions of Joseph Lopez, Natalie certainly didn't have to die. One of the things that came out during the police investigation was a character bio that Joseph created for himself for an online game he played regularly with internet strangers. The name of his character was Akai, and the bio he created for his character was extremely disturbing. It stated, quote, Akai is a manipulative psychopath that enjoys toying with others while causing them mental and physical pain. He acts like a saint in public, but he has no remorse or emotions in general. He will hurt anyone and has no limit to what he'll do. He spends his free time researching ways to torture people and keeping his mind sharp to avoid arrest. The prosecutor believed that description described Joseph to a T. Some of the employees he worked with said he was a great manager, he loved his fiance and his child, and would dance to Disney movies and songs. They said on the day after Natalie's body was found, he got so upset at work, he began throwing up and had to leave work early. They were all shocked, believing just like the character he created in his game persona that he was a saint. Joseph also admitted in his police interview that in high school, he wrote personal journals where he fantasized about kidnapping, torturing, and then executing people. When he came across Natalie's ad, he knew he would finally have an opportunity to live out his hitman fantasies in real life. Ultimately, the Adams County District Attorney's Office was worried that a jury would find a hard time convicting Joseph after they authenticated the ad for a hitman, which originated from Natalie's Gmail account. In that regard, and against the wishes of the Bullinger family, they offered Joseph Lopez a plea deal. In exchange for his guilty pleas, he would be sentenced to no more than 50 years in prison with the possibility of early release for good behavior. Natalie's father, Ted Bullinger, spoke to Denver News 7 and stated, quote, We said no, and they still offered it to him today. Our family does not agree with this or is willing to do any plea bargain. I'm dumbfounded. I'm so disappointed in the legal system in Adams County. This monster took my baby. He should not die as an old man. He should die now. He should die soon for this. I need a super lawyer. They're out there. I need someone that can take on the Adams County, the judicial system, and fight for our family. At Joseph's sentencing hearing, Chief Deputy District Attorney Ali Baber discussed the Craigslist ad and Joseph's failure to alert the proper authorities. She stated, 
Natalie Bullinger was 19 years old with her whole life ahead of her. The defendant was a predator. He didn't respond as a human being. He responded as a predator. He had hours and hours of opportunity to do the right thing and to save her life, but he chose to murder her. Ted Bullinger had a chance to address Joseph at the sentencing hearing. He stated, quote, You took advantage of my daughter. She was vulnerable and drugged. You brutally shot and killed my baby. I ask for an eye for an eye. You have been protected. The Bullinger family has no say in this. This is a deal with the devil, end quote. Ultimately, 23-year-old Joseph Michael Lopez was sentenced to 48 years in prison, followed by five years of supervised probation. The death of Natalie Bullinger has left a deep scar on her family and her friends, as well as the community of Broomfield. Her story is a stark reminder of the dangers of untreated addiction and depression. It reminds us to advocate for and check in with anyone we might know who is suffering from these debilitating conditions. Though her life was taken too soon, her memory will live on as a reminder of the importance of mental health awareness. If you or someone you know are contemplating suicide, please know that you are not alone and the help is available. The first step is asking for help. Please reach out to a trusted friend or family member. There are helplines that you can reach out to with trained professionals who are available to talk to you 24-7. You can reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or 8255. You can also reach their crisis text line by texting HOME to 741-741. Remember, suicidal thoughts can be overwhelming, but there is help. You matter. By reaching out for help, you are taking the first step towards healing and recovery. Thanks for listening this week. And for all of you who continue to support us, thank you. We have some special shout outs this week. We have Jesse, Stacy, and Sarah. They are Crime Salad's new patrons. Welcome and enjoy the ad free listens. And don't cringe too hard at the early episodes on there where Ricky and I first started this amazing project. It's a little rough. Also, just a brief announcement, we are doing our first live show. If you're listening today, Wednesday, March 1st, this is your last chance to get your ticket to our amazing show that we will be having with Moment. It's completely online, so you don't have to dress up. I will at least hopefully be doing my hair outside of a bun, but please don't be shocked if that happens. And we're going to cover a case that we haven't covered yet. Just come chill with us. We want to talk to you and get to meet you virtually and talk about true crime stuff. Tickets are now $10, but if you use the magical promo code Crime Code, you get 90% off. So your ticket will be like $2 with a fee, I think. So if you're not doing anything, grab your ticket, your favorite drink, a blanket, and let's hang out. And be sure to go to moment.co slash crime salad to get your ticket. We will see you then. <laughs> <laughs>